Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Today is Friday, December 3rd, 2020. Excuse me. Well, we got December 3rd in the script there. It's January 3rd. Way to go, Jackie Clark, who wrote the script. Yes, I'm busting you out. It's Friday, January 3rd, 2020. She got December 3rd. All right, U.S. forces kill a top Iranian general. Donald Trump gloats. The question is... Will this lead to war? We'll talk with MSNBC uh, analyst Malcolm Nance about what is next. Also, Trump today, uh, right now, holding a rally in Miami with his uh, far right-wing conservative evangelicals. But do they actually speak for people of faith, or are they frauds? Mm-hmm. Mike Bloomberg was asked about his administration's support for the way New York City handled the Central Park Five. He says he really can't recall, but we do, and we'll break it down. The governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, wants the statue of Robert E. Lee removed from the U.S. Capitol and the white cop in New York who broke into a black woman's house in Tennessee and threatened her and her sons. Well, that punk ass has quit. And 
Tamis Smiley is proceeding with his case against PBS, they have dropped this 500-page report that details lurid sexual harassment allegations against him. He says he can't wait to go to court. It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roller Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. The U.S. has deployed thousands more troops to the Middle East after Trump ordered an airstrike that killed a top Iranian general. Also, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah, has vowed vengeance. Now, what's going on there? The U.S. Uh, State Department has ordered all Americans out of Iraq and Iran, as, first of all, out of Iran, as a result of this action, saying that, frankly, it is not safe. Now, what's interesting is that Donald Trump had lots to say when President Barack Obama was in the White House when it came to Iran. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's weak and he's ineffective. So the only way he figures that he's going to get reelected, and as sure as you're sitting there, is to start a war with Iran. Now, I'm more militant and more militaristic than the president. I believe in strength. But to start a war in order to get elected, and I believe that's going to happen, would be an outrage. Iran can be taken down in many ways. Their population is in turmoil. They look at what's happening in Syria and other countries where it looked like it was an impossibility, and it looks like that one's going to collapse also. So Iran can be taken. I would never take the military card off the table. And it's possible that it'll have to be used because Iran cannot have nuclear weapons. But you've got to exhaust other possibilities. And we're in a great position to do it. They know, or they at least must know, that they're in a little bit of heat because there's a lot of pressure to attack. This is a great time to negotiate. Unfortunately, we have a president that doesn't know the first thing about negotiation. We have a real problem in the White House. So I believe that he will attack Iran sometime prior to the election because he thinks that's the only way he can get elected. Isn't it pathetic? Mm, yeah, it is pathetic because could that be the only way Donald Trump gets reelected? See, there's always a tweet or a comment from the orange one when these things happen. Now, today, in Palm Beach, where he was speaking, he finally appeared before the press. Now, understand, normally what happens when the president of the United States takes an action like this, they notify what is called the Gang of Eight. That is, the top congressional leaders in the House and the Senate. Donald Trump didn't do that. In fact, we also know now that he told Israel about this attack before he told 
American congressional leaders. They've already talked to Russia about this. And Trump still has not talked to congressional leaders. Well, this is him today explaining uh, the actions. Uh, go, go right to my iPad. highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. Last night, at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. For years, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its ruthless Quds Force under Soleimani's leadership has targeted, injured, and murdered hundreds of American civilians and servicemen. The recent attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq, including rocket strikes that killed an American and injured four American servicemen very badly, as well as a violent assault on our embassy in Baghdad, were carried out at the direction of Soleimani. Soleimani made the death of innocent people his sick passion, contributing to terrorist plots as far away as New Delhi and London. Today, we remember and honor the victims of Soleimani's many atrocities, and we take comfort in knowing that his reign of terror is over. Now, what's interesting about this is Donald Trump didn't even know who the hell this guy was when he ran for president in 2015. The folks at Fox News were actually joking about it. What's also interesting about this is that he calls him the number one terrorist in the world. That's actually not true. So he was simply making those things up. The question now is what happens in that region? I uh, want to bring in our, our panel here. Uh, this is a huge, huge uh, story because, again, it raises concerns among many Americans in terms of are we now going to be entering into another war in the Middle East? Julian Boykin, uh, he's with the Young Republicans of Southern Maryland. Dr. Niambe Carter, Howard University Department of Political Science. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor, environmental justice for the EPA. Dr. Carter, I'm going to start with you. Um, this is somebody who, was, who has said that we, we should be pulling out of the Middle East. Supposedly, Jared Kushner is negotiating uh, a Middle East peace plan. This action right here completely throws all of that out of the window. Iran has made it clear they're going to strike back. Mm -hmm. So if you are American troops, if you are Americans living in that region, uh, there is great fear because you have no idea what is going to happen next when it comes to the Iranians. Absolutely. I mean, they made it clear that peace is off the table, right? At this point, they want revenge. I think he has done this without really thinking about what the destabilizing effects are going to be on the region, right? I mean, there's one thing to sort of be strong and have a show of force. It's another thing to now plunge ourselves into another war with 
domestic considerations for the people who are on the ground there, right? This is going to have ramifications, not just for Iran, but that whole region. So I think um, people better buckle up because there are going to be more deployments, right? They are already uh, strengthening the number of troops that are in the region. Um, so this is about to be an escalation, um, and it's going to escalate very quickly, I think. Uh, I want to go to right now to uh, MSNBC uh, analyst Malcolm Nance. Uh, he, of course, uh, uh, long serving long time in U.S. intelligence, author of the book The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It. Uh, Malcolm, uh, put into context exactly what has taken place in the last 24 hours. Well, what's happened here is that we've seen the United States take a very, very uh, decisive step, uh, is a polite way of putting it, uh, towards uh, essentially war with Iran. Uh, this goes back one week ago when uh, uh, Iranian, well, suspected Iraqi militias in Iraq who were trained by Iran were accused by the United States government of carrying out a rocket attack on a base uh, named K-1 in the vicinity of Kirkuk, Iraq. This killed one contractor, wounded several service members. Uh, from there, uh, they decided that this was backed by Iran, that Iran apparently gave the, uh, the, the uh, Iraqis the uh, weapons and equipment uh, to do this, which you know, when you're talking about an Iraqi militia, is uh, a little a little laughable because the Iraqi Iraq the wash with them. Um, from that point, the United States vowed that they would have a um, they would have um, retribution against whoever did this, and that's apparently when the planning to kill the top Iranian general, Qasem uh, Soleimani a man who has uh, been involved in Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps terrorism since the 1980s. Uh, Soleimani is not just a general. He is like a combined equivalent of the vice president, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, you know, has rock star status, uh, like, you know, almost equal to Barack Obama, for example, because he is also the man that mobilized Iraq's militias uh, from a ragtag group of people into a half a million man force that defeated and pushed ISIS completely out of Iraq. He was very public. He was on television all the time, very popular. Uh, and it apparently the United States carrying out a drone strike executed him the deputy commander, uh, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Al-Muhendis, the engineer, as it's translated, uh, who was the commander of the Kata'ib al-Hizbollah, the organization that carried out the protest around the embassy the other day and laid siege to the uh, to the building. Uh, they, uh, they were both killed in the airstrike, and there have been reports that commanders from two other militias were arrested and seized by U.S. forces. So, so, Malcolm, so apparently this. the United States decided that we would go directly at the, uh, the Iranians and essentially wipe out their most popular figure uh, outside of the, uh, you know, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei himself. Uh, Malcolm, explain this. So, so Donald Trump stands before the cameras, 
uh, in Florida and says this was the number one terrorist in the world. That's not true. You know, it, 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 it really goes to how the conservatives define terror, right? Anyone that they don't like uh, who may have been involved in activities which were nefarious, they can do that. Now, I have been in this business since the early 1980s, and Qasem uh, uh, al-Soleimani came on my radar in 1986 when we were carrying out activities to rescue and find hostages that were being seized by the Lebanese Hezbollah terrorist group. He is a terrorist in the sense that as a sponsor of state terrorism, right. he would uh, work with militia groups, he would work with state proxies like Shia rebels in Yemen, uh, Shia rebels in Syria, uh, who would carry out acts of terrorism. In that sense, if you say he is a, as a state sponsor of terrorism, yes. But he is not Osama bin Laden. He is a state figure. But, so, you know, there are people in this world who would point out U.S. activities and would say, essentially, that Mike Pence uh, is the same thing. But, but you just so, said something critical here. You just said something because hmm. you said that uh, he was the one who put together the group that drove ISIS out of Iraq. And this yes. is the piece where I think Americans not not really understanding what in the hell is actually happening. So here you have, can you have, again, in this country historically, because first of all, if we want to go all the way back to Mossadegh in 53, where the Iranians, there was a time when the Iranians loved America, but when we helped uh, uh, what is basically uh, B British Petroleum BP today overthrow uh, Mossadegh, uh, then Iran and put the Shah of Iran, that's what would change everything. But what's interesting here is that what you're dealing with in this region is that you have, at one time, we loved Saddam because he hated Iran. Then we were down with Iran because they hated Iraq. Here you have an Iranian general who's driving ISIS out, and we're supposed to hate ISIS. And I think that's the piece that people don't understand. You have these different loyalties as that's happening there because different people have different interests based upon what, uh, you know, what is happening in their country. Well, in this circumstance, you're absolutely right. But you would have to understand this is the when Iraq was invaded by ISIS, where they came from northern Syria and then drove almost down to the top of Baghdad, you know, Iraq was working almost principally by itself and then with the summit, the air assistance of the United States. And this is where so enters Soleimani. He runs the Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. They are a massive paramilitary force of, you know, almost half a million men, uh, scalable in wartime up to two to three million men. And the IRGC's mission in this case was to assist Iraq and whatever they need as Shia religious brothers, so to speak, right? They all come from the Shia faith. He came with weapons, equipment, organization, and literally organized this ragtag band of Iraqi militias that were essentially guys with guns and turned them into an army and had them fight side by side with the Iraqi army when they retook the city of Mosul and then drove the Iraq, uh, ISIS 
out in the north and west and the west. Soleimani worked in coordination with us because, of course, he was working with the militias. He was on the battlefield all the time. He was a very hands-on general, um, you know, and he worked with these Iraqis to help them lose. I mean, they lost thousands of men, but they drove ISIS out of Iraq. So in that circumstance, we needed him. Um, but he, that doesn't mean that he wasn't awash with blood all over his hand. I mean, Soleimani was a bad actor. He worked in Iran's interest. He did not work in our interest. And of course, after our mutual interest was ended, he went back on the hit list. Now, that doesn't mean that we should have struck him when we did where we did, because what happens in this administration is they carry out acts without thinking about the consequences. They have no consequence management skills. And this could literally turn the Middle East aflame. And so, so Malcolm, so, so explain that for the folks who are watching, because I think what you have is you've got Fox News over here. Yay, yay, yay. Uh, Trump took him out. Without, and then saying, well, these other presidents, they wouldn't do that. Well, there's a reason why a president, Barack Obama, or President Bush, or President Clinton, or any other presidents would not target a top Iranian general because they understand proportion, proportionality. Yeah. Because you have to not just say, well, if we take him out and his aides and a couple of the people, and then everything is all done. No. You got to be thinking 10 steps ahead that if we take him out, then what's the ripple effect? How does that now alter the course of history? That is the issue here that I think people have to understand. Well, certainly, you know, you, you would imagine that any normal White House would have this gamed out using experts, uh, using the State Department diplomats, and they would try to understand what the secondary and tertiary effects of any of their decisions are. Uh, however, when you get a situation that's m much, much similar to the George W. Bush decision to just go into Iraq and wipe that country out, uh, the you know Saddam Hussein and its leadership out, uh, with where they literally hid all of their operational planning away from diplomats, and literally, when I was in Iraq, said they didn't want any experts or anyone that could speak the language or understand the culture. So this is where you get disaster from. And what's happening here, you know, Soleimani, although he deserved that missile, it's the secondary and tertiary effects and, you know, quadrary effects as they come. Right now, the ball is in Iran's court. They have the option of setting the Middle East on fire or being a little magnanimous about this and exacting their revenge later. And that could be any number of proxies. But, you know, you have the new commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Guard Corps, who was the deputy of Soleimani. He didn't have the political stature of Soleimani, but he still controls all the weapons, all the men, and all the terrorism levers, and essentially is a power unto himself in Iran. He has already sworn absolute revenge, and it will take take place at a time of his choosing. And what should be the concern of 
Americans? What, what, I, because I think when you, when you hear people say, oh, my goodness, there might be war with Iran, is that overstating this? Well, no, because that <laughs> depends entirely on Iran. Now, as we've seen, proportionality has gone completely out the window with this administration. And it's almost as if they were looking for a fight. They're spoiling for a fight. You could move to a, a point where you could have a war that is direct open confrontation with Iraq, with Iran, if Iran so chooses. And I have been active in operations against Iran since, you know, Beirut in 1983 when they uh, assisted in building, you know, the bomb that killed 243 Marines. Uh, and I've been in direct combat with Iran, direct naval combat in 1988, uh, and been bombarded by Iraq, you know, Iranian missiles by Iranian militias in Iraq. So we haven't had uh, a circumstance since the 80s where we would get into a face-to-face -face confrontation because Iran doesn't think it's in their interest. But they certainly have the capability of defending themselves. Uh, let me make this clear to your viewer. When we invaded Iraq, we were fighting 25% of the population, about 5 million people. There were 80,000 terrorist combatants. They managed to kill, over seven years, 4,493 service members and wound over 20,000. Iran is a homogenous nation state of 85 million people. They have the capacity to spool up the number of men between 18 and 35 in a matter of weeks. And that number is almost 30 million men. So this isn't something we should take lightly. This is a very large nation. It has a history that's almost 4,000 years old. They have, a, they have a regional doctrine and strategy that they're adhering to. And killing uh, General Soleimani, uh, they do not want to destroy their own infrastructure. They will make sure that their revenge is exacted quietly, hopefully, and most likely the Iraqi Shia militiamen will carry out this revenge, not the Iranian army or the Iranian armed forces. Last question for you. How problematic is it that Donald Trump told Israel about this action before it happened, that we've already communicated with Russian leaders, yet he is still yet to tell the Gang of Eight, Republicans and Democrats, talking with Senator Lindsey Graham and Matt Goetz and some others, that's not the same as the congressional leadership. Look. Donald Trump does not care about the Constitution of the United States. He doesn't care about the organization of the government of the United States. Let's be frank. Donald Trump is an autocrat. He wants to be an autocrat. His best friends are an autocrat. He may as well just call himself, you know, King Donald I, because he chooses to run this government like he is a monarch, like he's a king. And he doesn't seem to understand nor believe that all of the trappings around him, the very people that built the White House, John Adams, um, 
risked their lives to fight people like Donald Trump, to fight against this monarchical mindset. He does not care. And now that he's been impeached, he's starting to understand it's just a piece of paper so long as he has the Republican Party in his back pocket. And at this point, that makes him dangerous because he can, he flaunts not just the norms of the presidency of the United States, he flaunts the norms of decent society. And to him, having a war with brown people on the other side of the world, to him, is a win because his people are inherently racist and they take U.S. policy to carry out racist activity. We've seen this time and again, documented, confirmed behavior. So with that in mind, and the belief that he is unaccountable to the nation, he will carry out a war and do whatever he wants. And uh, hopefully that the Iran's retaliation isn't so severe that he starts thinking about applying the use of nuclear weapons, because he there, he is an absolute monarch. He has the authority, so long as the uh, target is not something uh, crazy like France, he has the authority to target and use nuclear weapons as he sees fit, because the people of the United States, in their infinite wisdom, chose him as president. That's how the rules work. I know I had a final question for me, my panelists. You have any questions for Malcolm? Anyone? All right, cool. Malcolm Nance, man, always a pleasure. Again, folks, uh, you definitely want to uh, uh, get his book. It is called Author. Uh, he's the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It. Malcolm, thanks a lot. My pleasure. All right, uh, go to our panel here. Uh, Dr. Carter, you were speaking. Uh, before we, we, uh, we get to go to Malcolm, I want to pull in uh, Mustafa here. Look, presidents have taken actions uh, to retaliate when Americans have been attacked. But to Malcolm's point, you better be thinking about the fifth and sixth and seventh, eighth and ninth and tenth steps. There's no evidence this, this administration can think beyond the first action. Yeah, I mean, it's reckless. It's reckless policies, dangerous policies. And it's interesting also, you've, you've noticed that the generals who were part of the administration before who may have been able to, you know, quell some of this, to, to provide that advice and recommendations that's important to any leader to say, this is not the move to do, they're no longer there in that administration. No one has a voice to be able to help make change happen. And I appreciate what Malcolm was saying also by breaking this down for folks, because folks don't actually understand, you know, the infrastructure that's there in the Middle East that will be damaged, that will be destroyed, and it will have repercussions here in this country. Um, and also, you know, since I come from a climate background, I understand when you start blowing up oil wells, how that will also impact the environment. There are so many things that will be connected to this set of, um, you know, like I said before, reckless uh, movements that will play out for generations to come. Uh, Julian, uh, Speaker Nance Pelosi issued this statement where she said, go to my iPad, please. Uh, American leaders' highest priority is to protect American lives and interests. We cannot put the lives of American service members, diplomats, and others further at risk by engaging in provocative and disproportionate actions. Tonight's airstrike risks provoking further dangerous escalation of violence. America and the world cannot afford to have tensions escalate to the point of no 
return. She then says the full Congress must be immediately briefed on this serious situation and on the next steps under consideration by the administration, including the significant escalation of the deployment of additional troops to the region. Fair or unfair? That's fair. I believe that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, if she wants to be brief, she should be brief. Now, no, 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 not that she wants to be brief. She's the Speaker of the House. No, She's no, no. part of that gang of eight. What I'm saying is, if she's saying, hey, I want to be briefed on what, of how this decision was, was determined, who made it, you know, what evidence do you have, I want to see it, then, you know, the, the, the Trump administration, they should show that. Now, when they're going to show it, I don't know. I can't speak on that. But she's part of the eight. She should be entitled to that information. So I'm not saying she should not be have privy to it, so she is entitled to the information. When she gets it, I don't know. I don't well, think, Dr. Carter, they care. I, I, I think they have no intentions uh, on doing that. Uh, and again, he pulls in Sarah and Lindsey Graham, who is not a part of Mm -hmm. Republican leadership nope. in the Senate. He's the chair of a committee. He's not. He's not the speaker of the House. Excuse me. He's, he's not uh, the majority leader. Nope. Uh, he's not in the House Republican leadership uh, uh, leadership conference or the caucus there. Uh, and so, uh, again, to Malcolm's point, he doesn't care. Yeah. His whole deal is, I'm the president. I don't care what y'all think. I mean, it, the truth is, I mean, I think what, what I, I think we were all so quiet because what, what Malcolm lays out is the very real possibilities that are here. But he does have a responsibility if he's going to be committing troops, right? He has to go to Congress within the next 48 hours. But I think more than that, all of the people who could have been stopgaps between this moment yesterday, right, that happened over the last 25 hours, and where we may be headed, were all kept out of the process because he does not care about potentially de-escalating a situation, right? All he knows is respond, respond, respond. But as Malcolm Riley points out, this is going to have larger implications for that region that we're not even thinking about, not to mention the size of this potential skirmish, right? Osama bin Laden was a person who was acting kind of outside of the bounds of the state. But now this is where diplomacy was supposed to come in. We're dealing with another nation, not some rogue actors, right? Not some some outside militia group. This was a military official, right? A government official. Right. So now we actually have a moment where we're going to have to contend with another government, right? And that's a very different situation than we were in um, with 9-11. With but we should also look at the difference between this administration and the last administration. So if you look at the Iran nuclear deal, there were a number of other countries that yes. were a part of that. Not just the United States. Exactly. Multiple, other, multiple nations. Yes. And with this administration, you know, they reached out to Israel, and I understand that conversation that happened, but... To the best of our knowledge, there was no conversation with the United Kingdom. There was no conversation with France. There was no conversation with Germany, which were a part of that nuclear deal that President Trump decided to remove us from uh, a couple of years ago in, in 2018. Um, and now we're in 2020, and he has now assassinated this leader, somebody who, you know, some have labeled him in his respective country as a rock star. So you know that's going to mobilize many young men to want to get engaged in whatever types of actions that are going to happen. And there are too many soft targets that are all over the place that will now be vulnerable based upon the actions that this president decided to make. And he has to carry the water on this um, for all the lives that will be lost. And here's the other thing that really gets me sometimes is that his sons are not of military age. So they're probably not going to be engaged in, in whatever might 
transpire here. And of course, we know his record. My family has served since World War II all the way up. But when he had the opportunity to actually serve, he decided to go in the opposite direction. Mr. Bonespurs. Exactly. <laughs> the the l last point here, and I think that this is really, I think, uh, what is so critical here. Most Americans, and I, I, I made that clear when, when I started with, 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 uh, with Malcolm, most Americans have no idea what the hell the realities in, in the Middle East. Have absolutely none. Again, if you look at American history, when we were friendly with Iraq, supplied Saddam Hussein uh, with weapons because he was fighting our enemy, Iran. Then all of a sudden, we started hating Saddam Hussein, and so we started working with the Iranians to fight him. Now you're dealing with, uh, remember, we were funding uh, the folks in Afghanistan when supplying them with weapons, uh, with all sort of different things to take down the Russians in Afghanistan, boom, all of a sudden they flip, then they, they turn against us. And it's understanding, you know, what is happening. Uh, look at Syria. You know, we sit here, pull out of Syria mm -hmm. to help the Turkish president, but then we screw the very people who were helping in Syria. That emboldens the Turks who hate the Turks. The Turks hated the Turkish president, hated the folks that we were working with. He wanted to take them out. Uh, the Syrian president wanted to take them out as well. You're sitting here saying, okay, whose side should we be on? And that's part of the problem here, is that on any given day, who might be your friend on Monday is your enemy on Tuesday. And they might be your friend again on Wednesday. And I flip back to being your enemy on Thursday, and then you friendly on Friday. And that's the fundamental problem we have here. And not only that, we are in Iraq as guests mm -hmm. of the Iraqi government. If the Iraqi government says, y'all got to go, we can't say, the hell with you, we're going to stay. No, we got to go. And so all of those uh, issues, I think, are brought to bear. And it was very interesting. So, uh, so I was tweeting um, some stuff earlier, and uh, uh, Mark Davis is a... Um, a conservative radio talk show host uh, out of uh, Dallas, and I was so I had sent some tweets, you know, targeting him, asking him some questions. And what I found to be interesting when I hit him, he goes, "You know, is the distrust?" Uh, let me find the tweet. I, th I thought it was pretty funny when he when he asked the question about the distrust uh, of Trump, and he essentially said, "Is the distrust of Trump?" this high. And I said point blank, Mark, I can't trust nothing this man says. Mm -hmm. Julian, I literally can't trust, I cannot trust the Trump administration when they say mm -hmm. we took this action because of this. Because this is the same man who pissed on the exact same intelligence community when it came to Russia interfering with the election. So, so which is it? Oh, now I believe them, and now I don't. Not only that, we've been given two different answers. Mm -hmm. We've been told the State Department and the Pentagon has given two different answers on what happened. State Department, there was an imminent threat. Pentagon, no, it was a response to what just took place. 
Okay, if it's both, say it's both. But don't give me two different answers to exactly why something took place. And again, that's the issue here. Normally, we are trusting the person occupying the Oval Office to make decisions in the best interest of Americans. I can't trust anything this man says. Nothing. I can't trust anything. And that's why you have a level of distrust because this is a man who lies, who lies about basic stuff, who literally at the rally he held today with the evangelicals lied about, I got rid of the Johnson Amendment. No, you didn't. It's still law. You didn't get rid of it. That's a lie. And that's part of the issue here. You cannot trust what comes out of this man's mouth. And that's why anything he does, the motives are always questioned. Just a reality. Going to a break, we come back. We'll talk about uh, the evangelicals, uh, the conservative evangelicals uh, meeting with Trump uh, in, uh, in Florida today. But it's very interesting because they love talking about evangelicals for Trump. I want to just go ahead and say white conservative evangelicals because certainly black folks don't feel the same way. Black evangelicals don't feel the same way about Trump as other folks do. Also, Tavis Smiley going to court against PBS after he was fired, they say because of sexual impropriety, he says, I can't wait for my day in court. That's next, Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, folks, as the marijuana momentum continues, uh, the folks at MarijuanaStock.org have already reached more than half of their funding goal for the hemp CBD investment. That's right. If you want to take advantage of this great opportunity, you need to do it now because it won't last much longer. Now, if you don't know, I'm talking about the hemp plant, the good cousin of marijuana with a much higher concentration of CBD. That means hemp gives you all the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Also, if you don't know, hemp farming is now legal in the U.S., creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. Now, it's an opportunity for you to invest, and that's where 420 Real Estate comes in. Their business model is very simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed, high-paying tenants. They're hemp CBD landlords. You can get in on the action. Now, of course, uh, what they're doing is allowing you to uh, invest a minimum of 200 bucks up to $10,000 in their crowdfunding campaign. That's right. 200 bucks up to 10,000. Now, to invest, all you got to do is go to marijuanastock.org. It's marijuanastock.org. Then you'll see all the details. So you want to get in the game and get in the game now. All right, folks, today, Donald Trump held this big old rally with these white conservative evangelicals uh, in Florida after Christianity Today wrote a scathing editorial saying it's time for him to get bounced because he's morally bankrupt. Now, he chose to have this rally there, and all they were there praying for Donald Trump and all that sort of stuff along those lines. And you had folks like Tony Perkins, um, uh, you know, who's a you know, big-time white conservative evangelical uh, who's out there tweeting as well. And so he, he tweeted something that uh, I, of course, took offense to, and I had to respond to him uh, when he did. Uh, and so this is his tweet right here. Great turnout in Miami for the Evangelicals for Trump coalition launch. 
His strong record on life and religious liberty makes him a clear choice for evangelicals in 2020. Now, let me be real clear. He's not a, a, a clear choice for evangelicals in 2020. He's a clear choice for white conservative evangelicals in 2020. See, there's a difference. Because the reality is, black evangelicals are not supporting Donald Trump. See, part of the problem with these white evangelicals that they have always, they have basically hijacked the name evangelical. They've even caused national media that when they have a discussion about evangelicals, they automatically go to these white conservative evangelicals as if black folks and Latinos who are evangelical or Asians are not included in this same conversation. That, to me, is one of the fundamental problems that we have here. What's also interesting, just so y'all know, that these same white conservative evangelicals, they don't want to actually have a conversation conversation with black folks, Latinos, and other white folks who are not in their same camp. Let me help you all out. When, when Reverend Dr. William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign went to Liberty, Virginia, where Liberty University is, founded by Reverend Jerry Falwell, now run by his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's an attorney, not a pastor. Jerry Falwell Jr., sent a letter out saying that if any person, if any individual with the Poor People's Campaign stepped foot on the campus of Liberty University, they were to be arrested. He ordered every student that no student or faculty at the university should even attend this event led by the Poor People's Campaign. What does that tell you? about how these white conservative evangelicals think. Not only that, Reverend Barber, Reverend Jim Wallace, and others who call themselves progressive Christians have offered to debate these white conservative evangelicals. Folks like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Tony Perkins and Ralph Reed and Robert Jeffers and others. They've declined. What does that tell you, Mustafa, when you, when you see what's going on here? Trump's hardcore base are these white conservative evangelicals who only care about two things, same-sex marriage mm -hmm. and abortion. Mm. They don't give a damn about anything else. Those are the two most important things they care about, and that's why they also want these hardcore right-wing judges on the federal bench. As Franklin Graham said, mm. they will be actually ruling on policy when I'm no longer here. Yeah, it's interesting. We look back at scripture and uh, Judas sold uh, himself, uh, sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If you think about that in today's times, how people are literally selling themselves out for a Supreme Court judgeship or selling themselves out so that there can be these inhuman uh, immigration policies, or even if you want to have the conversation around abortion rights and those types of things. That's the reason that folks don't want to actually have a real conversation, a debatable conversation, one, on scripture, but two, on if you say that you're a follower of Jesus, what the reflection of that should actually look like and should be. Um, and, you know, that's the reason folks don't want to deal with uh, Reverend Barber, because they know, one, he understands the book, but he also understands what humanity is actually supposed to look like. Julian, here's what's interesting. Um, go to my iPad, please. Poverty grew in almost half of Pennsylvania counties despite strong national economy. You will not hear 
these white conservative evangelicals talking about this here. They don't want anything to do with the Poor People's Campaign. They will stand there and talk about, oh, how they love Jesus, but they love that Trump tax cut. They love deregulation, but you will not him. And, and, and what did Jesus talk more about in the Bible than anything else? Money, the poor. These folks don't give a damn about the poor. Who do black evangelicals follow? Black evangelicals actually, I believe, uh, broaden the notion of what it means to be a person of faith. I think black evangelicals do not define the faith based upon who's gay and who's pro-choice or who's pro-life. I think black evangelicals look at how do you care for the poor? Look at how do you treat your brethren? And I'll give you an example. Um, Pastor Maurice Watson, when he was in Omaha, Nebraska, a group of white conservative evangelicals came to him, loved his pro-life stance. He's now a preacher here at Metropolitan in D.C. Came to him and said, we want you to participate with us in our pro-life march. He said, sure, not a problem. But I need y'all to do something for me. They said, what? He said, I need you to march with me against these crack houses in our neighborhoods. And within white preachers in Omaha, Nebraska said, oh, no, 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 no. That's your problem. <laughs> See, that, that right there, I think, defines the difference between black evangelicals and white conservative evangelicals. I think religion has its place in politics, but I don't agree with it when you use it, when you pick and choose how you use it. I think if you're going to be fair and reasonable across the board for everybody, just be fair and reasonable across the board for everybody. So I don't like when people pick certain verses out of the Bible and use it against you to make you feel bad, but at the same time, they don't ad adhere to those same principles. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, it should be fair and reasonable across the board because I've seen black pastors that don't want to support gay marriage and they have that right to do so. So, and I asked them, I'm like, okay, where do you stand on certain issues? You know, we can't just overlook that. And, and, it's, and, and the same goes for, you know, the white evangelicals. You, you, you know, you can't say, hey, we support this and not support that. See, these white evangelicals, these white conservative evangelicals, what they want, they want far right-wing judges on the federal bench, Dr. Carter. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen the whole deal here. Many of these folks, do, they are against civil rights. Yep. They support voter suppression. Uh, they rule for big business and against uh, uh, folk. And so what these evangelicals are doing, these white conservative evangelicals, and yes, it's a sprinkle of black, it's a sprinkle of Latino, and what they're doing on the Latino side the reason they get more Latinos who are evangelicals is because the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Because the Catholic Church is opposed to abortion. The Catholic Church is also opposed to the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Not these folks. Right. Well, I mean, look, I think the thing about white evangelicals, and they can wrap themselves in the cloak of Christianity if they want to, their ideology is white supremacy. What they really want is to preserve the lives of white children, right? This is why they get their cockles up about abortion, and they get their cockles up about gay marriage. I mean, they can, they can use black faces for billboards. I remember they were doing that a few years ago, saying the most dangerous place for a black child is in the womb or something. 
some nonsense like that. They still doing it. Right. To bring in black folks. But let's be clear. These people don't want to do anything to sustain life beyond being born, right? They are not about anti-poverty. They're not about clean environment, right? Clean water. They don't care about any of those things. They certainly don't care about uh, the unfair application of the death penalty to black and brown folks who are more likely to die, right, um, by those means. So they don't care about life, per se, right? Um, what they care about is making sure that they can extend their lives and their beliefs beyond their time. And let's be clear, most people don't believe what they believe in, right? But they found someone who can say, I care about uh, uh, pro-life and I care about, you know, um, uh, a heterosexually defined marriage. And that to them is the litmus test. All of the other things that come with sustaining life, um, they don't care about. So I, I always say, when these people say they're Christian, I say, well, the God they serve is a white, blue-eyed Jesus, right? It's not a God of all of us. Um, and in their minds, this world and the, the world that they want to leave behind is going to be the, the world that best produces white people and white children. And they are clear, I think, to me, um, from what they've said and in their deeds, right, that that is what their main interest is. It's not about love. It's not about a more robust life, no. right, so that we can all live it abundantly. They don't care about those things. In, in fact, Mustafa, uh, I remember this vividly because I remember talking about this uh, when I was on CNN. Uh, and so, uh, Bob Riley uh, was the governor of Alabama. Republican, white, conservative, evangelical. He says, he said that this was back in 2003 or four. He said that the tax code, actually 2006 or seven, the tax code in Alabama was grossly unfair to the poor. So in Alabama, they started taxing people beginning at $4,600, one of the lowest uh, thresholds of any state in the country. He said, this makes no sense. If you're making $4,600, mm -hmm. he, he said, you can't afford to be paying taxes. So here, this $1.2 billion tax package that was going to raise taxes on the wealthy and businesses and was going to cut taxes for poor families. What's interesting is that Chamber of Commerce supported the, supported the governor's proposal. In fact, what he also did was he used the Bible and what would Jesus do as a campaign thing. This person uh, was interviewed. He said, I just don't think you can find a justification in the New Testament for taxing a family that makes $4,600 a year. He went all around the state proselytizing. What would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. It lost 65% at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And those white evangelicals in Alabama, guess what? They voted with their pocketbooks against the poor and against this proposal. And that's what I keep trying to explain to people. Their faith is a buffet line. <laughs> I'm going to take one of those, one of those, and I'm going to leave the rest. That's why I call them hypocrites, and that's why I call them out. In the Bible Belt, making those types of decisions, it doesn't matter. It's not even in the Bible Belt. Um, we, Far too many folks place the dollar over their spirituality, and it's very clear to see. 
And, you know, we're all going to have to answer for the decisions that we made and the actions that we made in one day. Simple as that. Simple. And speaking of answering to that, Mike Bloomberg has a lot to answer for. The recent campaign event in Alabama, the CBS News reporter, uh, Tim Perry, asked Bloomberg, who's running for president on the Democratic side, about his previous support of how the investigation in the Central Park Five case was handled. Listen to this. We started talking, to, talking about race, and a, uh, a subject that's come up a lot is the Central Park Five. Um, and when you were mayor of New York, you defended the city and the police department's handling of the Central Park Five case. Uh, you argued that they both acted in good faith. Do you still believe that today? And do you think that I, the I, city I really have no idea. I've read in the paper. I've been away from government for a long time. Um, so uh, apparently but, the courts have ruled that they did not commit it, uh, commit a crime. And that's the final word. And we just have to accept that. But it isn't a question at, of what at, anybody at believes. At the time, you did not believe that. And so I'm saying I, now, I just, have, you, have you changed your I, stance I, on that? I think there was an awful lot of evidence presented at that time that they were involved. There's been questions since then about the quality of that evidence. And so, I, you know, it, it's, I've been away from it for so long, I just really can't, uh, can't respond because I just don't remember. But uh, there's been plenty written about it, and I'd suggest you go and, uh, and, and read some of that. I have never lived in New York City. I am a native of Houston, Texas. But do you think for a second that I don't remember this case? Do you think that somehow over the course of time, I've forgotten a Central Park Five case? That's like asking somebody black who grew up doing Jim Crow, did she forget the Scottsboro Boys? <laughs> but let me also explain to you why Michael Bloomberg is an absolute fraud with that answer. Because Mike Bloomberg as mayor opposed let me say this loudly and clearly Mike Bloomberg as mayor opposed a settlement for those young men the only reason there was a settlement was because de Blasio was elected Mayor Mike Bloomberg is lying. To say you do not recall the details, to say, well, some evidence was presented and, you know, there were some questions. There were some questions. And then to say, well, we just have to accept the court's... Really? It was renewed as a result of the Ava DuVernay film on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So, Mike Bloomberg, are you telling us you were completely out of the loop on this one? Mustafa, mm -hmm. I said this. The apology that he gave 
AR, Pastor AR Bernard's church on Stop and Frisk was BS. I don't accept it. I don't buy it. This man was defending Stop and Frisk as late as January of 2019. And all of a sudden, you're telling me that in November of 2019, you found religion, and now you see that it was bad? On this case here, this man simply it is disqualifying the answers that he has given on this case, and it is no different than Trump defending his actions in this case as well. You notice also words have power, and he said, apparently... So apparently leaves this space for folks to still hang right. there and say, well, maybe they really were guilty, even though the DNA evidence said that they were not guilty. So, and here's the other thing that Matter I... Matter of fact, let's do this here. Let's do this here. I want to do this. I want you to play back what he said. I want people to actually listen to every single word that he said. And so I want you to play it. And then as soon as we come out of the break, come out of that, Mustafa's going to answer... Dr. Carter's going to answer, and then Julian's going to answer. So play it back exactly what Mike Bloomberg said about this. We started talking, to, talking about race, and a, a, uh, a subject that's come up a lot is the Central Park Five. Um, and when you were mayor of New York, you defended the city and the police department's handling of the Central Park Five case. Uh, you argued that they both acted in good faith. Do you still believe that today? And do you think that I, the I, I really have no idea. I've read in the paper. I've been away from government for a long time. Um, so uh, apparently but, the courts have ruled that they did not commit it, uh, commit a crime. And that's the final word. And we just have to accept that. But it isn't the, a question I, I, of what I, anybody at believes. At the time, you did not believe that. And so I'm saying, I, now, I have, just, you, have you changed your I, stance I, on that? I think there was an awful lot of evidence presented at that time that they were involved. There's been questions since then about the quality of that evidence. And so, I, you know, it, it's, I've been away from it for so long, I just really can't, uh, can't respond because I just don't remember. But uh, there's been plenty written about it, and I'd suggest you go and, uh, and, and read some of that. Yeah, so, again, <laughs> apparently, no, it's not apparently. The courts have cleared them, have said that they were innocent. The DNA evidence also cleared them. So here's the other thing. We, we see people who have huge amounts of wealth, and with that wealth comes the access to information. Mm -hmm. He is one of the most powerful people in the state of New York, probably one of the most powerful people in the United States of America. So you can't just say that I've been away from government for a while. It's not like you don't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to know what's going on. And this was a significant... Uh, issue in time in your city and so you of course would be a part of the garnering of that information and what you should do is as we've said with other powerful folks if you made a mistake in the past admit it right. and say that I've grown I've learned um, and then be supportive of what that change is that's happened when that information comes out and when you don't do that it makes it look like you're being disingenuous that you're being um, unauthentic uh, in the responses that you're giving. So, you know, we got to have people, as my grandmother says, when you know better, do better. Yeah. But it's not just seeming right to be inauthentic. He is being inauthentic. He's lying, right? I mean, this man spent the better part of his administration fighting 
uh, compensating these these young men men for their traumas, right? I mean, the city was wrong. It lied. They beat those boys into confessing. He knew this. Everybody knows this. And then, like you said, the way he kind of slyly put it in there so it makes it seem like, well, maybe they're guilty, but they were exonerated because the evidence was of poor quality. No, there is no DNA. There was one perpetrator. That perpetrator has been found. Unfortunately, these young men had to pay with their lives. And since they've been exonerated, you still have people like Michael Bloomberg and Donald Trump who want to say these young men, uh, and at the time, boys, were guilty. They're not guilty. They didn't do it. Full stop, right? And Michael Bloomberg spent $6 billion of the city's money fighting, compensating these young men for what they went through. And if you ask me, him sitting here saying he can't recall should be the thing that we say, well, then you shouldn't be president. Because if you, at 77, when you were the mayor of that city for, what, about 10 years, and you spent a huge time fighting the people of the city of New York, fighting these young men as citizens, right, of that space who have been so um, brutally um, treated by the criminal system, by your police department, everything on down, that you can't, you can't remember that, then you're too, you're clearly not with it. You're not ready for this job. This is not the experience for you. And, Julian, here's a timeline. 2002, the convictions were vacated. Bloomberg becomes mayor in 2002. He serves from 2002 to 2013. The settlement happens in 2014. So you're trying to tell me in one of the biggest stories in the city of New York in the second half of the 20th century, a case that Convictions were overturned, vacated when you took over. And the entire, all three terms of yours, this was an issue. And now I can't remember. Honesty is the best policy. I think, well, I know. You know, at some point, you just got to just say, hey, I made a mistake. This was my standpoint on it back then. Looking at the evidence, we have DNA. It proves that they were innocent. I apologize. These young men should have never been convicted. They should have never been charged. I want to fully apologize to those young men. That's what should happen. You know, I think the president, he should apologize, but at the end of the day, the president is his own person. He's going to speak and do whatever he wants to do. And to Dr. Carter's point, the settlement was $41 million. True. Bloomberg spent $6 million of taxpayer dollars fighting, fighting mm -hmm. the settlement. He should have... So the settlement actually cost New York taxpayers almost $50 billion. Right. He should just admit to it. You know, just admit, hey, I made a mistake. Yes, I remember. I didn't want to talk about it. So sometimes honesty is the best policy, and apologizing shows humility. But can, he, mm. can we also get him to apologize for the stop and frisk? Because no. after all those years... <laughs> well, no, he claims he apologized. No, he didn't. At, at, at Bernard's yeah, church. Yeah, we saw it. We saw it. All the, I'm saying is this here. The one on one, um, I, I, I can't wait for Michael Bloomberg to sit down and do an interview with some black folk. <laughs> oh, that's not happening. <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> he apologized. What was it, a one-on-one -on -one interview? No, no, no. no, it, it, was, no, no, no. it was at... Pat, he yeah. went to Pastor A.R. Bernard's church yeah. uh, where he spoke and he shared his thoughts and now I've come to realize... No, no, no. He had to sit down with somebody about that. No, actually, he didn't. He, he ain't sat down with nobody. 
He said that. But coming to realize when black and brown people in that city had been telling you for years that this is hurting us, stop doing this, and you doubled down on it, right? So you're, you're sorry? Well, what's the point? You did the damage. Now you've hurt all these people now. I don't mm. care about your sorry. And really, he should have been taking money out of his own pocket and compensating the city of New York for that $6 million lawsuit because he was bound and determined that those young men would not receive a dime after their exoneration. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, not buying it. All right, folks. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam filed a request for a bill that would replace Virginia's statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in the U.S. Capitol building. The filing came after Democratic Virginia lawmakers Jennifer Wexton and A. Donald uh, uh, McEachin both requested that Northam prioritize removing the Lee statue. They also recommended a number of Virginians who could replace Lee, including educator and orator Booker T. Washington and civil rights attorney Oliver Hill. Robert Edward Lee was a Confederate soldier best known as a commander of the Confederate States Army. He commanded the Army of Northern Virginia in the American Civil War from 1862 until his surrender in 1865. Uh, Julian, well, a lot of people don't realize when you come to the U.S. Capitol, there's a statuary hall. Each state is given the opportunity to place two statues in the statuary hall. Um, every state gets two. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, Florida, they had a statue uh, that was of a Confederate leader. Mm -hmm. They passed the bill, removed it, and it was replaced with uh, Mayor McLeod Bethune. Okay. Uh, you, you, it, it, it's embarrassing to go to Statuary Hall and to walk through there, and you're seeing these statues, and to be a black kid, or frankly any kid, from Virginia, and when you walk through, and if you want to take a photo in front of the two statues from your home state, one of them is a Confederate general, Robert E. Lee. My question is, which part of history do we, do we accept? Which part of history are we going to acknowledge? So if we're going to remove the Robert E. Lee statue, why not remove George Washington? George Washington had slaves. Oh, uh, you, so, so, so hold up. You, just, hold up. Let's be real clear. You're going to get no argument from me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, well, what I'm saying is, <laughs> I, don't I, mean, want, I, I don't want to pick and choose parts of history trying to erase it. But 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 they are. But 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 they are. See, 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 first of all, what they've done is the people who support these statues, they've lied. They've lied all these years. Because see, and what's interesting is that you have folks like Dinesh D'Souza who wants to brand Democrats as the party of the KKK, who wants to say it was Democrats who backed Jim Crow. If the people today who are supporting Confederate statues are Republicans. Now, the problem is that, again, there's history and there's history. Mm. What we have been subjected to has been history and not history. These statues, for the most part, were built in order to remind black people of, of slavery. It was to... They lost... The fact that you have so many statues of traitors, of domestic terrorists, folks who lost and not understanding why they were erected. They, this statue and others were erected because white racists wanted to say, y'all are not going to forget your place and we're going to remind you of what the world should have been had we won. That's the problem here. So, 
you're saying those statues need to be removed. What I'm saying is this here. But if presidents who own slaves, like Washington, like Hamilton, should those should their statues the be first, removed well, as well? First of all, Hamilton was never president. That's first. Uh, uh, so should Washington's sta statue stay? Well, first of all, Washington doesn't have a statue. He has a monument. Should and his so, monument stay? So here's a piece. I ain't got, first of all, the monument is not going to get torn down. But you can remove a statue. True. But the reality is, those statues, and the other statues have been removed. States get to vote on mm -hmm. removing statues. I'm, Dr. Carter, I'm supportive of this. Uh, oh, and I ain't forgotten no of them. I ain't forgot your black face. Right. Don't think for a second yes. that I forgot your black face. Right. Uh, but the bottom line yeah. is, uh, yeah, this needs to go. Well, this is a place of honor, right? This is where each state gets to send who they think are the best representatives of that state. Virginia chose in the 20th century, right? They didn't pick this in the 19th century. They chose this in, I think, like the early part of the 20th century, Robert E. Lee as the best representation of Virginia, right? Because they thought a Confederate loser, right, and a secessionist, and a slave owner and all the other things was the best representative that their state had. They still honor him every year. Absolutely they do. I mean, they have a number of streets named after Confederates. I mean, like, Virginia's all in on Jefferson Davis there. Highway, Absolutely. the greatest domestic terrorist in U.S. history. They, they, they still do it. And so I think, you know, for... If we're talking about symbols and how things matter, yes, it does matter that Virginia is still upholding Robert E. Lee as a best representative of what their state has to offer. When, if you think about it, right, he's the person that lost. And he's a traitor to his country, right? And he's all these other things that we can say. I don't know many other places that have statues to losers. Well, let me give you one. So, when I used to visit my grandmother in Clarksburg, West Virginia, there mm -hmm. is in the center of town a statue of Stonewall Jackson. Mm -hmm. Who fought for the Confederacy. Absolutely. He was born in West Virginia. But West Virginia went with the North, so they fought for the Union, as everybody here knows, and hopefully all the viewers do. And yet, I remember that was one of the areas where there was at least a handful of black folks. So when you go in northern West Virginia, there's only a couple of cities that got a handful of black folks. <laughs> and to actually have that as the symbol there says something about the change that needs to happen. And there it is. Well, this is the uh, statue. Uh, so when you come to the United States Capitol, uh, and you walk in that hall and you see all of these statues representing each state mm -hmm. of the Union, this is one of the two that represents mm -hmm. the state of Virginia. And I say, yeah, remove it, put the damn thing in a museum somewhere, but that should not be representative of the state of Virginia. And if you are a black kid in Virginia, there's no way in hell when I go to the U.S. Capitol, I want to be able to say, oh, Two of the best that we can send was this Confederate general who was a vicious, nasty slaveholder. And that's what he was. Ain't gonna be rewriting the history, folks. That's called history, not his story. All right, folks, let's go to our other story here. That is a New York police officer, Michael Reynolds, who was sentenced last month in Tennessee for a racist tirade and break-in in the home of an African-American family, has resigned from the force. A cause for the, his firing, uh, of course, yeah, he's white, have grown since he was sentenced December 6th in the rampage at the Nashville home in 2018. Online petition drew 12,000 signatures. Now, Reynolds pleaded no contest the charges of aggravated criminal trespassing and assault. He broke into the home near the Airbnb where he was staying, yelling racist slurs and threats at Conice Halliburton and her four sons. Halliburton's youngest sons were reportedly 8 and 11 at the time, 
Guys, he was only sentenced to 15 days in jail and three years of probation. This is the call here. Go ahead and play it. Fifteen days. Yeah, he should have lost his damn job and hopefully does not get a pension. All right, folks, former talk show host Tavis Smiley has lost a bid to throw out PBS's lawsuit that accuses him of violating his contract by having sex with his subordinates. Smiley's attorneys argue that PBS was trying to punish him for behavior that long predated his current contract. When a ruling on Thursday, D.C. Superior Court Judge Yvonne Williams disagreed finding that PBS had also claimed more recent misconduct. PBS canceled Tavis's show after receiving a complaint of sexual misconduct in late 2017. Smiley sued PBS in February 2018, accusing PBS of conducting a sham investigation and of dismissing him based on racial bias. PBS countersued, alleging that Smiley had violated his morals clause and had engaged in financial impropriety. A trial is currently scheduled for, fe for February 10th. Uh, now, folks, what's interesting about this is that um, after this happened, PBS uh, launched uh, an investigation when they put together this 500-page report uh, detailing all sorts of lurid details uh, with regards uh, to uh, Tavis Marley's conduct uh, when he had his show. Uh, he argued, and this is very interesting, he argued that, first of all, in the way this was set up, People, people don't realize. So Tavis was not an employee of PBS. Uh, he owned this company that produced the show in conjunction with the PBS station in Los Angeles. And it was aired on PBS stations nationally. Uh, and so he said that his company had no rules about folks dating in the workplace. So his whole point was, how are you telling me how I should run my company? What my rules are, they say they actually violated uh, those rules. He did uh, release a comment. Let me pull up in a second. Um, his, um, his representatives uh, sent me an email. Let me uh, pull it up. Uh, Howard Bragman, who is uh, uh, an attorney, excuse me, uh, publishes there. Uh, he did comment. Uh, I'm going to pull this up in a second. But just, but just what are your thoughts again on this lawsuit and Tavis's, Tavis taking it further and now this this 500-page report is going to be entered into the public public record. Well, this might have been one of those moments where um, you, you cut your losses only because if half of what we've been able to, to read so far is true, it doesn't look good. And even if um, these relationships were consensual, as, 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 as Tavis Smiley is alleging, I think it's, it's hard to toe that line when you are the boss. True. Your HR and everything else in that company, right? So if I have a problem with you, say the relationship fails or say um, it, it doesn't work out, who do I go to, right? Uh, there's nobody to talk to about retaliation. I think it's just bad business, right? Um, in addition to the sexual harassment stuff, which I think is, 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 is separate from his conduct as a business owner, right? Because if you are my subordinate, how much consent is there really, right? If yeah. you work for me, do you really have the right to say no? And is that yes or real yes? I think this is why companies and businesses have policies against 
uh, having an owner or, or someone who's a superior date a subordinate because that consent piece gets really murky and really tricky. And that's across industries. It's not just television. I mean, it's also universities, et cetera. I mean, I'm at a university with a very explicit policy against faculty dating students, right? Because this can get really sticky very quickly for those kinds of places. So I just think um, beyond the sexual uh, misconduct allegations that are, that are being alleged, um, there is this other part about how you conduct business. And this sounds insane, right? That you would um, date people that work for you, right? They're not people who just work with you. They're people who work for you. Um, and, and, and whether those people were really giving a real consent, it's not saying it's, it's rape, right? I think there's a lot of real estate between mm -hmm you know, coercion and, and rape, but I think the fact that you have relationships, ongoing sexual relationships in the workplace with people um, who work with you saying that it's consensual doesn't really hold water when you are the head honcho, right? When you are the person that gets to make all the shots. We talk about power all the time on this show in lots of different ways and power dynamics, and when you're in a position of power, you cannot put yourself in that type of situation. And just like my grandma say, when you know better, you do, do better. better. Hopefully. I, I think it's a conflict of interest just for the simple fact you are the owner. So you have employees that work for you. So I don't look at it as consensual from the standpoint of you're using a person's job against them. If you don't do this, then I'm going to fire you. or Right. Or now he claims he didn't. But they they say he did. But if they have that policy where there's no, no relationships with subordinates, it's a, if it's a zero tolerance policy, and it, 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 you know, it presents a, a right. conflict but, but, of interest, but again, you shouldn't do it. I mean, here's the piece, though. Again, when you have your own company, you can make your own rules. But you have the most to lose. No, no, I understand that. No, no, I get it. So, but what I'm saying, though, is you do have a right. Your company have your own rules. It, it, there's nothing that says you have to right. outlaw relationships between folks who work in the workplace. But the reality is, I think many HR experts will tell you that you probably want to do that. And, and again, and then also, if, if you say, hey, you can work in a company in different departments yeah. uh, and you can be together, when you talk about when you're the CEO. And yeah. the HR department and right. everything else in between, right. there is no place, there is no recourse. And lots of companies have policies where you can disclose the relationship to HR and then they kind of work through that legal side. But I think more than that, too, I mean, like you said, the PBS part of this, I think, is also interesting because PBS also has stakes here, right? It's also their reputation. People don't understand television, right, that they're just the distributor of a show that he produces and owns and that's separate from them, right? People see the entity PBS mm -hmm. and they think this is a PBS thing, right? So if somebody is getting sued, if somebody is 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 running his name through the mud, then PBS invariably is gonna come in there somewhere, is either part of the lawsuit or part of the part of the conversation. I mean it was sort of the same thing with Showtime and Lena Waithe and talking about what was happening on the shy, right? I mean she's like, I don't own that show, right? That's Showtime well, show. Well, 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 not, but, different there. But, Again, but, but how, the, how that was set up, yeah. But, but I mean, everybody gets pulled into the conversation, whether who owns what. And I think for PBS, it's sort of like, let's exercise an ounce of caution here and let's not pursue this any longer because this relationship is, is looking uh, like it's going to be a problem for us. And as a, a public broadcasting entity, they might have different considerations than, say, a larger network or some other... Uh, kind of the entities. I don't know. Um, I think this is where the technical TV side comes in, but I can imagine um, them not wanting to be put in the same conversation with sexual harassment, um, especially in this moment that we're in now where everybody is sort of kind of on alert and more sensitive. And I think for the better, 
But certainly, I, th I think if they have an image to protect and an image to uphold, this relationship was no longer serving them, and, and it had to go. This is the uh, statement here. Uh, I'm going to pull it up. Uh, Tavis Smiley dropped this comment on his Facebook page. Go to my iPad, please. A weak case, you play in the press. A strong case, you play out in a court of law. I look forward to my day in court February 10th, which I have finally been granted after two years of fighting. Julian? I, I think at the end of the day, you, you can't shit where you eat. You know, you, you don't jeopardize your livelihood for convenience, especially when that convenience is a, is a conflict of interest. There are plenty of people you can date outside of the workplace rather than jeopardizing that type of environment. And I will also say, I mean, look, you know... Look, I, I made it clear to anybody. I'm like, look, if, if, if anybody ever <laughs> accused me of something, it's going to be like, he a hard ass. Uh, he, uh, uh, Not he, he didn't touch he, me. He tough. He didn't touch uh, me. <laughs> oh, you can hang that up. Because, look, I, I, I don't even... Let me be real clear. <laughs> I don't even hug folks. Let me tell you something. Well, that's my right TV here. one show. You give me folks, No, no, no. <laughs> folks, folks, folks are like, oh, give me a hug. No, mm. I, 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 I don't hug. My deal is, I am not going to sit here and, and any of this sort of stuff. And again, when, when, you, when you listen to, uh, when you look at, uh, again, some of the details, and yes, uh, this is, of course, uh, this is the PBS um, uh, report uh, that they actually put together. A variety had a story earlier uh, where they talked about it, where they laid out some of those details. Uh, but according to PBS, uh, he uh, had multiple sexual encounters with subordinates, um, made unfavorable comments about PBS in TV appearances. Uh, misconduct allegations took place in 2015, 2016, uh, 2017. Question. Uh, they also, hold on one second. One woman told the investigators mm -hmm. that Smiley refused to write a letter of recommendation for her unless she came to his house at 11 p.m. She refused. She also said that when she came by his house one time, he wasn't wearing pants. Asked her to have a threesome uh, with him and a female employee. He's denied that. Uh, he also said that he hates women. Quote, these women owe me because no one else will hire them. Another woman uh, told investigators she had a sexual relationship with uh, Tavis Smiley, despite her concern that it would hurt her career. Uh, and then uh, also, uh, the investigator also interviewed Tavis Smiley, who, according to their report, admitted having relationships with some employees, said it wasn't misconduct. The investigator concluded that Tavis was not truthful and his denials conflicted with numerous other witness accounts. And so, again, when you look at, um, when you look at this, uh, also this variety of stories here, Smiley's own attorneys filed the documents, including the PBS. So Tavis's own attorneys, they're the ones who filed the PBS investigative report. And apparently they were removed from the court docket on Friday morning. Uh, and so that's interesting that his own attorneys would put that report into the record, which actually makes him look really bad. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say this. In the, I mean, if some of these relationships can be characterized as dating. These other things are just harassment, right? This is not dating. So, so it's, it's a combination yeah. of that. It's, a, it's two so, separate. Some, some said it, it was consensual. consensual. Uh, some who said it was consensual said, yeah, but I felt like my job was on the line. They were other complaints said, well, the, the other women felt, uh, felt... They felt uh, coerced. Other women uh, said, uh, look, they felt it was wrong because, okay, is so-and-so getting a promotion because they're sleeping with him and then I'm not? So all, yeah. all of those things uh, were part of this. But it goes to trial next month. Yeah. You you said Tavis Smiley owned his own company, so he utilized PBS's platform, correct? Yes. Yeah, so what so happens is... Is there a contract? What, 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 well, yeah. Yes. What, what happens is when you do a show with PBS, you actually do a show... Your production company doesn't want the 
in partnership with a local PBS affiliate. Right. Okay. So that was the PBS affiliate in Los Angeles. And then you're able to do a national distribution deal with PBS and their stations across the country. But yeah, there, there is a contract. There's that a states, contract. That states what he allegedly done. They said that there's a morals clause there's in their contract and he was in violation. That, that's that's, that, that's, that's what PBS says. That's what they're so, so that's, that's I'm getting at. If that, if that is the case, then I don't see how he has a legitimate case for the simple fact. If you sign something knowingly and willingly and say, hey, I didn't agree to that. Well, your signature's right here, so... You, well, you it's, it. look, look, Bob Line is going to trial next month yes. unless there's some sort of settlement. Uh, I don't think there's going to be one. There's been lots of bad blood uh, between PBS and Tavis uh, for quite some time. Uh, and remember, uh, after he lost his gig, he announced uh, that he was supposed to be doing these shows with, with uh, the Word Network and was launching a digital show. None of that ever came to pass as well. Uh, and so uh, we'll see what happens. So pretty much, I mean, since this went off the air... You really haven't seen much of Tavis Smiley uh, anywhere. Uh, the book imprint, uh, he was supposed to do a uh, stage play tied around his book on the final year of King's life that was launching, uh, I think it was um, like around November 2018, uh, leading up to uh, MOK 50, actually 2017, leading up to 20, MOK 50. That never happened as well. And so we certainly uh, shall see. All right, folks, uh, I've got to go. Uh, we certainly will thank all of you for watching Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, please support what we do. Every dollar you give goes to support this show, to make this show possible. Uh, so you can pay via cash app. You can join our Bring the Funk fan club, which gives you discounts to items uh, on uh, RollerMartin.com. Uh, and so we got some great stuff lined up for you as well that we're working on. As you see, uh, this, is, this is one of the outfits that I had made when I was in Ghana. Uh, this is called the Nkrumah Fat uh, Kente. So every time you see a piece of kente cloth, it's actually named. There's a meaning behind it. And so Kwame Nkrumah, of course, was the first president uh, of Ghana. So this, this kente is called uh, the uh, Nkrumah kente. So I want to thank the folks at Charisma uh, in Accra, Ghana, who made this outfit. They got some other stuff that I'm making, but y'all see all that later. And I got one that's black and gold. You really love that Mustafa. It's what? You can't wear that one. Wait, wait, wait. You know what? I, have, you can't I wear haven't that seen one. you in a while. And trust me, there, there's and, absolutely no Kente fabric I, I got. I got this for you. Happy belated family. There, there, there's day. no Kente Happy fabric that I got that's purple and gold. But, I want to let you know that. But, None. But, you know, purple is rose. No. So it's okay. You know, it's okay. Well, you can call it whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but Bob, it's true, Bob, Bob line is, y'all couldn't be created when you took one of our colors. Really? I thought yeah. so. We were black. <laughs> we were black and old okay. gold first. Okay. And enjoy your, enjoy Who's your, your daddy? Day. I don't even know what that is. It's a madame. You know what it is. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. Yeah, no, you I do. don't. You act like you don't know. No, you know. I don't. Would you like it, sir? I'm fine. Oh, go. No, right. Because, see, uh, <laughs> alphas, we don't call each other animal names. That's y'all, little dogs. That's right. We grown-ass men. All right, y'all. <laughs> go to rollmarkonthefuture.com. Join our Bring the Fuck fan club to support uh, what we do. Independent, black-owned. That's the way it should be. We able to speak truth to power, and we got to ask nobody's opinion to do so. I'll see you guys on Monday right here. Have a fabulous weekend. Oh, by the way, um, before I go, this weekend, now, y'all, I don't watch the NFL, but I did have to uh, say something about Henry Peterson and this poor little Cowboys. In fact... I'm a Cowboys fan. You a Cowboy fan? I'm going to add you to it. Well, go ahead. In fact, y'all, uh, is this, is this the phone Instagram, here? Twitter, so I was, ahead. I went to Giant earlier. I went to Giant earlier. Had to get some fruit. I started the, the D-Herbs 21-Day Cleanse. 
Y'all, I saw the most pitiful looking thing I have ever seen. Which phone is it on? Uh, I just got to show y'all this here before we go. Uh, pull the music down. I, I, I'm, I'm going to end the show in one second. But I got to go ahead and show this here because y'all going to get a kick out of this here. So I, I'm going through, uh, I'm going uh, through uh, in the parking garage. And y'all, the car next to me, I saw this and I just busted out laughing. Uh, when I saw this, uh, Henry, Henry, go to my iPad. Y'all, somebody actually had a little cowboy, a little limp cowboy's car flag flying on their car. <laughs> I tweeted this out and Mark Lamont Hill said it should be at a half mass. <laughs> uh, that's what he said. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the polar Dallas Cowboy didn't make the playoffs. Uh, eight, eight, and eight. The sun shines on dog, but every night. I, I'm so just, I'm just saying. You can't win them all. I, I'm just saying. I, I understand you can't win them all, but y'all didn't win many of them. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so it's, it's a little rough. It's a little rough for you cowboy fans. I understand. And see, not, now that I know you cowboy fans, it, that, that just make it worse. So you know, Mega and a cowboy fan. Oh, that's trifling. Uh, and so, <laughs> and your so, team is. And so any of y'all, uh, I'm from Houston. You from Houston? We're in the playoffs. Y'all ain't gonna get far. Uh, are we in? Okay, but are y'all at home? We, it's okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, How far you think matter fact, get? Matter of fact, who does Houston play this Matt weekend? Buffalo. Matter of fact, let me go ahead and show y'all this here. Who does Houston play? St uh, Buffalo. Oh, uh, St Stephen A. Smith posted this one here. Let me go ahead. I, I just want to just, this, this is the last one I'm going to show y'all uh, because I know Henry right now is, is, is pain having to direct the show. He's a huge Cowboy fan. Uh, and so Stephen A. Smith hit this out. All my Cowboy players, where's the best place to sit for the playoffs? So uh, that's that right there is for that's for y'all. Because I, I just want to go ahead and just you know, there's lots of room on the couch. How many y'all enjoy? Hold on, really? You want to show that one? I mean, how many? You know what? I, I'm sure. I'm, you know what? I'm glad you brought how that many up. Super Bowl I'm glad. I'm glad have? you brought that up. Cause no, no, no. my cause my man, this the, this the last one right here. My man, Eton Thomas, sent this out yesterday, and y'all, this right here. Uh, go go ahead, pull it up. Uh, before my nieces were born, mm -hmm. that, that was just so. Eton Thomas, I appreciate you okay. tweeting that out there. Okay. But 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 Julian, and, and just so y'all know, uh, when I was playing, Julian was like, "Damn, that, that was that was." He said that was a good one right there. That was a good one. Yes, that was a good one. All right, y'all. Uh, as we always end every Friday, of course, showing the folks who contributed to Roland Martin Unfiltered. We want to thank all of you, including you Cowboy fans out there. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I'll see you guys on Monday. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, 
We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.